Watch out for those weirdos. <laughs> we are the weirdos, mister. Hello and welcome to another session of the Windsor Film Club, the underground podcast covering the underappreciated, underseen, or just plain weird in the world of film. I am your host, Raina Cervantes. This week is week four in our Pride Month theme, Cronenberg Month, where we're covering the lesser known films from body horror maestro David Cronenberg through a possible queer lens, question mark? I don't know. Some of them have them. Some of them don't. It's always interesting to look at it. The film this week involves video games, fleshy orifices, Jude Law, and the distortion of reality as we know it. This week's film is Existence, and joining me this week is BJ Colangelo. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Thank you for joining me in this one-on-one session that has never happened on this show before. Hey, you know what? I am pretty proud of being a boundary breaker and a, a glass ceiling shatterer. And if that's what I can do today by being a one on one for your podcast, I'll take it. Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, this episode will go go down in history for, a pod. <laughs> um, for our listeners who are wondering where Madison and Steph are. Madison had some severe Internet issues and Steph is going on a trip. You know, it's always nice to get away vacation and reset you know i lord knows i did that once i got laid off from netflix i like disappeared for three weeks (laughs) i'm not jealous that you were let go from netflix because that sounds like a shit show but i am jealous that you had a chance to like disappear from the world for three weeks that is my dream i really did i i like flew to arizona and like went to sedona and whatnot and finally saw the grand canyon and other stuff i'd never done so you know it was just nice. nice to do that um so for our listeners that don't know, who are you and what do you do? Like, um, what's what's some stuff you've worked on or, or have in the works? Where might our listeners know you from? Sure. So hi, everyone. I'm BJ Colangelo. I am an insufferable loudmouth on film Twitter. So there's that. Um, <laughs> my handle's just my name. Uh, but uh, in terms of what I do, I am a filmmaker and a film analyst. I don't like the word critic because... I don't critique film. I analyze the ever living shit out of it. Um, I do currently work as a writer full time over at Slash Film. But if you can think of any horror publication from Vangoria, Bloody Disgusting, Dread Central, Daily Dead, all of them, I've written for them at some point or another. So my work is kind of all over the place. Um, But I also make films and I am currently producing the documentary Mental Health and Horror, a documentary and uh, I've got some other cool stuff in the work that I can't talk about because I signed NDAs and we know how that works. Definitely. Wow. That's a that's a very loaded resume. <laughs> I must say I'm a little bit intimidated. <laughs> <laughs> you should not be intimidated. I also definitely forgot because I'm an asshole and also forget things because I'm very, very, very neurodivergent. Um, but I also do host a podcast with my wonderful, incredible wife, Harmony, called This Ends at Prom, where we analyze and assess uh, coming of age stories in the teen girl media market, um, which is very fun and always ruins my credibility in horror circles where they're like, uh, you have a podcast about teen girl movies. And it's like, yeah, a lot of horror films are also teen girl movies. But, you know, that's an that's an argument for another day. Exactly. Very excellent pod, by the way. I'm actually quite a fan of it. <laughs> oh, thanks. It's just us, you know, yelling about things aging poorly or people being unwilling to understand that you know, time changes. You know, that's that's kind of how this pod ends up turning out. It's always like one person yelling, this movie's good. And the other person yelling, this movie is aged like dog shit. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, thank you for coming and joining me this week. Like I said, this is a one on one episode. Never happened before. <laughs> so I'm just going to run through it like it's a normal episode. So, you know, All right, last, let's go. Last week, it was like five of us here. And like this week, it's just me. So. Um, we're having a nice intimate conversation about the the brilliancy that is david cronenberg so we're good exactly exactly a hundred percent so usually before we hop into the film that we're covering for this week we usually just talk about something that we watched this week that might have flown under people's radars or something we really just like you know dug is there anything this week you saw that you want to put on people's radars so okay i'm actually gonna tell on myself a little bit here and that's fine I am currently with my wife going through and rewatching the entirety of South Park, um, <laughs> which obviously not okay. like an underseen show. It's one of the biggest shows that's ever existed. 
Um, but part of why we're going back and wa- watching it and rewatching it is because we want to see one, like, has it aged as badly as we think it has? And two, like how much of it has influenced either our sense of humor or like what things have we picked up from the show that have just existed in our vernacular and we've not known about it. Mm-hmm. So we've been rewatching it. And obviously there are some aspects of the show that have aged like milk in the sun, just atrocious. But there's a lot of it that is so refreshingly ahead of its time and like shockingly progressive for when it was released that it is like almost uncomfortable. Like it's uncomfortable to see a show like tackle so many issues that like we're just now getting around to to having discussions about. Um, Mm -hmm. Like earlier today, we watched the episode. uh, It's their version of like the Leave Britney Alone episode. And obviously like it's grotesque and it it deals with some, it's also an allegory for Shirley Jackson's The Lottery. Like there's a lot going on there. But I remember we were watching it and we're like, this is taking place in 2008 when people were like peak hating on Britney. And we are just now having conversations about like, hey, maybe that was fucked up. Like the way we treated her was a problem. And it's like, man, when like the guys from South Park are ahead of you in terms of like assessing things that are going on, like that's really telling. Um, So we've just been watching that and like trying to see like, where is the mark? Like, when did they go off into like full libertarian land? Like, when did it happen? Because I am curious and I got to know. Yeah, I've all I kind of grew up watching South Park and I always thought it was like one of those shows that I would never want to go back to because, like you said, there are elements that have aged like milk. But I do find like a lot of that humor to be like very progressive for the time. And I kind of think that's Matt Stone and Trey Parker's like kind of trademark. Wouldn't you say? Oh, absolutely. Um, the the common belief that we have with it at this point is that the show is very much a Rorschach test where how you react to the jokes and how you interpret it says more about you than their actual intention. Um Because there are some episodes where I know people have been like, this is the most offensive and terribly, you know, portrayed thing I've ever seen. And then you go back and watch it and I'm like, not Big Gay Al's Big Gay Broke Right is actually saying some things like the Gays and Scouts Mm -hmm. episode is saying some things that a lot of people were not willing to talk about yet. And that's worth something. Mm -hmm. Definitely. They really, they really carved their like brand out of like doing like a little bit tasteless humor, but also Mm -hmm. having some merit behind it. And I think part of it is because like what they do shows like eight days to air and they're like on top of like every like hot topic at the time. Yeah, it's it's pretty incredible. And it's just been like a very interesting cultural study in seeing like how we've grown. And also I I think South Park is up there with things like Fight Club and American Psycho and Joker, where the reason that so much of it has been negative to the world at large is because people took the wrong messages behind it. Like, I don't know why people think that like Carmen's an endearing character. Like, he's clearly a villain. Why are you emulating him? You fucking weirdos. Yeah, he literally feeds a kid like his parents in a bowl of chili. Right. Like, why was that not your sign that maybe when he says anti-Semitic things, uh, don't take that as gospel? Yeah, for real. For real. And that's always interesting to look at media like that, because like you said, like Joker and American Psycho and South Park always get the bad rep. But deep down, like at their core, they like they sometimes have like some very like I'm not going to say like endearing stuff to say because we just said not endearing, but very like uh, real stuff to say about their topics. Oh, totally. Like the fact that there are people in this world that do not understand that American Psycho is just a giant commentary on toxic masculinity is shocking to me. But people people see what they want to see and they take what they want to take. And that's why I am an analyst and not a critic. Exactly. That's why I love criticism as a whole. I was just like, I cannot handle this. Like, I kind of love criticism a little bit after uh, not what movie was it? I think it was after Halloween Kills. I was like, this is going to be my final like critical review. I'm never doing this again. <laughs> it's exhausting. Like, And also, you, if you're somebody who loves film, you don't mm-hmm. want to be that person whose job it is to shit on a film. Like, if I don't like something, I just yeah. don't talk about it. Like, unless it's actively harmful i'm just gonna mind my business (laughs) yeah and i had like a tweet earlier this week that i ended up deleting that was like it wasn't good for my mental health to like shit on a movie i didn't like movies are a lot of work and people pour a lot of effort into them and who am i to say this is bad and shit all over it just because it didn't really apply to my taste i don't know i'd rather propel the movies i love like 
push them up rather than bring others down. Yeah, exactly. And there are plenty of people out there who are very, very good at critiquing things negatively. And I hope that they get paid to do that work because I don't want to do it. Yeah, exactly. No, I'm in the same boat. It's like, please let there let there be other critics so I can know what they think. And I'll just sit here and I'll analyze Venom 2 as the queer masterpiece it is. I mean, they are boyfriends. So, yes. <laughs> I mean, he literally has a scene where he says I'm out of the Eddie closet. <laughs> yeah, like it's not subtle. <laughs> no, it's not. And I love it for that. But yeah, yeah. South Park. South Park's great. That's on HBO Max, right? Yeah. So currently all of the episodes are on HBO Max. The movies are on Paramount Plus. And then in 2025, I believe it then all goes to HBO Max because they signed the deal with HBO Max before Paramount Plus existed. So they've got a couple more years on that. Isn't that wild how that happens? Like I heard something like Jurassic World Dominion is going to Paramount Plus before it goes to Peacock because they signed a deal before Peacock existed. Yes, it's so weird that that's a thing that happens now. I mean, like, give it like I think 2025 is the like the master year in which everything will kind of evened out in terms of like which distribution companies are owned by which streaming service. But for the next couple of years, it's still going to be really weird. (laughs) Definitely. And uh, speaking of weird, I guess my underseen thing this week. This is it's not really underseen, but I guess I'm telling on myself here as well is uh, I finally started The Boys. On oh, Amazon. good for you. <laughs> yeah, I am somebody one. A little background context on me is I am somebody who loves superhero comics. I grew up reading them, but am super jaded with the superhero genre of movies as a whole. So when I heard I'm about this, I'm not surprised in the slightest. Yeah, yeah, totally. So when I heard what the concept of this one was, everyone's like, oh, you haven't seen that? That's a total Reina show. And I started it this week and was just kind of blown away by it. I like watch season one in a single sitting. Oh, I love that for you. (laughs) I was like, oh, my gosh, I don't have to like wait weekly for this. I could just binge this, like get the whole arcs. And like I had heard that it was a very adult show, but I did not know to the extent of like what they meant. Oh, yeah. This show goes balls to the wall and they make no apologies for it. It's great. Yeah. Like like season one spoilers. Skip ahead five seconds if you don't want to hear like the fact that like they kill one of the like members of like this universe's quote unquote Justice League. They kill him with like a bomb that shoved up his ass. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> but uh, overall, <laughs> I, I really do find it like a smart, like very biting satire on like not only like the like business side of like superheroes, but also like when they try to frame like certain storylines as like, oh, this is progressive, but the corporation's only doing it to get your money. It's like I really feel that when I see something like that. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, it's pretty apparent once you learn that Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg are producing the series, it's like, oh, a lot of this makes a lot more sense now. Yeah, it's kind of funny, too, because the writers for the corporation, their names are Seth and Evan. Uh (laughs) I just it's a show that repeatedly I kept saying to myself, I'm like, why the fuck did it take me so long to watch this? Like, I should have been watching this from the jump. (laughs) I was a little late to the party, too. I started in season two, so I feel you. I hear the seasons get progressively better as they go on. So like my reaction was (laughs) and they get wilder. I do like how the show like wears its influences on its sleeves and it's like very winking of like this is what we're making fun of. And here's how it's going to play out in our universe. And I think that it's such a necessary show, because like you said, I think so many people are just struggling with superhero fatigue because It's like the Avenger stuff made so much money and then people were like, all right, that's all we're making ever again. And it can be very exhausting, even if it's something that you like, because it starts to feel very much like they made this through an algorithm and there's not a lot of soul to it. So to have something be willing to live in that world, but also critique it, like it just makes you feel very affirmed by all of like your own irritations that you have. Yeah. And that's kind of the feeling I had while watching the Batman, because it's like it's a movie I love. But like you said, it does feel like algorithm like, oh, Robert Pattinson, Zoe Kravitz, Baldano, like boom, 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 dark, brooding, just like the comics. Like 
as good as it is, it does at the end of the day ultimately feel like the product of a corporation, question mark. Mm-hmm. No, I and, agree with you completely. And it's it's weird because it's like I do love it and it is one of my favorite movies this year, but I can willingly acknowledge that like, yeah, I'm fucking tired of these superhero movies. Like I need something else. Yeah. Big same. Multiple truths being held at the same time. I can love something and also be really fucking sick of it. Like I love Pop-Tarts. I can't eat them every single day. I will get tired of them. Mm -hmm. I actually did eat those every day at the movie theater I worked at because we sold them at concessions. Oh, my God. I wish I could go and get Pop-Tarts at the movies. (laughs) Like we we sold the bites, but like they (gasps) taste exactly the same. Yeah, they really do. I've had them before. Oh, yeah. They're wonderful. Um. But yeah, so the boys in South Park, that's a that's our underrated, quote unquote, (laughs) watches for this week. Not really underrated, but two great things, two great biting satires that everybody should go watch. Yeah. And also like weirdly takedowns of hyper masculinity, too. Yeah, I need I need our listeners to know that this was not planned. This is just how it worked out. (laughs) Anyway, before we carry on into our movie for this week, let's hear. An ad read from our sponsors at Super Yaki. Folks, do you love movies? Do you spend your days thinking about how much you love to watch them? The good ones, even the bad ones everyone told you not to like? It sounds like Super Yaki is the place for you. The team at Super Yaki loves movies so much that they've dedicated every waking moment of their life to bring you top quality merchandise to showcase your love for them. From bumper stickers that tell the world about your love for the 1999 classic The Mummy to stylish hats that celebrate the fine works of Nora Ephron. They even have super soft t-shirts based off the internet's favorite collective husband, Oscar Isaac. Super Yaki brings you tangible love letters to the movies and filmmakers that you can wear with pride. Plus, the team at Super Yaki screen prints all their apparel using eco-friendly, 100% water-based inks and ships with compostable poly mailers for an environmentally friendly alternative to online shopping. And for our listeners, you can enter the code SUPERWINDSOR in all caps to receive 10% off your entire order. If the spirit moves you, find them at superyaki.com. Let's watch more movies. Okay, welcome back. DJ, you ready to talk about this weird, wonderful movie you brought this week? I'm so excited because I genuinely don't know if I'm ever going to get another opportunity to talk about existence. Oh, yeah. Let me let me read some facts. The film we're covering this week is Existence, written and directed by David Cronenberg, starring Jude Law, Jennifer Jason Lee, Willem Dafoe, Ian Holm and Sarah Poli. The film follows a game designer on the run from assassins as she must play her latest virtual reality creation with a marketing training to determine if her game has been damaged. Made on a budget of $15 million, the film only went on to gross $2.9 million at the box office. The film currently sits at 74 on Rotten Tomatoes, where critics have called it gooey, slimy, grotesque fun. Uh, <laughs> that Yeah, that's like the most simple Rotten Tomatoes like description I've ever seen for a movie. And I think it's probably the least complex way to describe anything David Cronenberg's ever made. Like this is like it's like describe a Cronenberg film in like four words or less. Like this is what you get. No, really. And I do think that like out of all of his movies, this one might be the most fun I had watching one. Oh, I'm so excited to hear you say that because this to me is one of his more tame entries. And I mm-hmm. think it disappoints some people who are expecting the fly or or Videodrome. And then they get this and they're like, what am I supposed to do with this? Like, I don't know. Have fun with that shit. Yeah. Like the man literally walks around with like a, a gun made out of gristle. Like, I don't, I don't <laughs> know what people want from this movie. <laughs> I had actually not seen this movie before today even though I tout myself as some like diehard Cronenberg fan. So this was a wild first watch because I didn't really know what to expect. Had you heard really anything about it up until this point? Like, cause some of Cronenberg's movies end up having, I guess like a world around them and like everybody knows like long live the new flesh with the video drum, mm-hmm. even if they haven't seen it. So did you have any inkling before this or was this just totally flying blind? So I had like a rough idea that it was like about video games. And I had made a joke during our crash episode last week that like one of my serious like goals as a filmmaker, if I ever start making movies 
is that I wanted to remake Crash in virtual reality. And mm-hmm. one of our guests for that week went, well, that's just existence. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> and he was like, don't worry, you'll watch that movie. You'll get what I mean. And I'm like, good God. So <laughs> watching this, I was partially blind. I just knew it was about a video game and that had a cool cast. It was one of Cronenberg's like quieter releases. Like, I want to know like your like origin story with this movie. Like when it, when did you first see it? Like, what was your takeaway from it? Sure. So I saw this movie wicked young. I was 12 or 13 because for your listeners who are not familiar with my work, I talk about it quite frequently, but I grew up really close to a video store and my parents had a standing agreement with the video store clerks that I was allowed to rent whatever I wanted, like regardless of age, regardless of rating, they like signed paperwork, all this nonsense. So I could just go in and this video store's back room, which is normally like where porn is, like that's where horror was for this store. So I'd be like a little seven year old, just like marching my way into like the horror section and be like, this looks cool. Let's watch it. Oh my. <laughs> so yeah, Existence, I ended up seeing a couple years after it came out um, just because the box cover art was interesting. And I liked uh, the. <laughs> The, the stylization of Existence with the capital X and the capital Z. And I think my initial thought was, is that Existence? Is it Existence? What is this? I need to know. Like, I just needed to know how it was correctly pronounced. Um, mm-hmm. So I brought that home. And obviously the, the image that was on the front is Jude Law with the fish gut gun. And obviously I didn't know where it came from yet, but I was like, that's weird looking. What's that about? Um, and I just remember watching it and being so mesmerized by the fact that it was a movie about virtual reality that looks nothing like anything I have ever seen from this time period that is set into like the near future, the virtual reality world, because this is coming up the same year as the matrix Mm -hmm. and the matrix I think is like where your brain goes to immediately. If somebody says, like neo future or or virtual reality or video gamey or whatever, like your brain is like the matrix. Like, of course, so it's chrome and leather and bright lights and everything's very fleek. And existence is filthy and gross and gritty and fleshy. And that looks nothing like the virtual reality that I knew. And I was like, this is amazing. Um, so this was one of my first Cronenberg films. The Fly is my first one. I watched that way too young, (laughs) probably like Mm -hmm. eight years old. Um, But this is the first one that I saw that I had like sought out on my own. Wow. Damn. I, yeah, I do not know how I would have processed this like as a kid. I don't, I don't even really know how I process it as an adult who like is like heavy into like the gaming world. Like it was very weird to watch this movie on my PlayStation 5. That makes a lot of sense though. No, it does. I, 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 I fully agree. (laughs) It's what Cronenberg would have wanted, if I'm being honest. I mean, yeah, like I feel like he would be thrilled to know that people are watching this movie on game systems. Yeah, yeah, he would he he would legit probably just like sh- sit there and shake his head and go like, that's cool. <laughs> probably. Well, but I, I get what you mean. And like once I heard what the concept was, I expected like something like a little more like cyberpunky, like Lawnmower Man or Matrix. And it's it's not that at all. Like. The sets are just like very like plain looking, like look like they take place in our own world. No characters are wearing funny clothes. Honestly, the most like unsettling thing is the gristle gun. Yeah, the gristle gun is pretty gross. Um, I mean, umbi cords kind of give me the creeps um, just because umbilical cords give me the creeps, like just in general. Um, So seeing people just like, lovingly Mm -hmm. carrying those around all the time it makes me think of those like weird moms that are like i carry the umbilical cord for my baby around for this many years because it's good luck and i'm like just get rid of it what are you doing (laughs) like this biohazardous material yeah people do that shit they like keep the umbilical cord or like parents who get their kids circumcised and keep the keep the foreskin and it's just like what are you doing no (laughs) oh yeah that's a thing that is a thing that is some Cronenberg shit right there. <laughs> right? Like, I don't think people realize how That's, normalized, yeah. like, weird-ass Cronenberg behavior is in our culture. <laughs> it's it's kind of it's weird, because I feel like every Cronenberg movie, like, 
you can watch through a lens of like like half of this is re- is like kind of like would fit in in real life not maybe the over the top fantastical elements but like for example like last week when we watched crash we basically came to the conclusion oh this movie's about people with depression that are just looking like for any way to feel something and i feel like existence takes place like in a world that is most like ours because the way technology has progressed like it's not too far off from what cronenberg thought was happening yeah it's pretty close i mean obviously vr is not something that we play by shoving something into our spines in a in a orifice that we have to keep lubricated and we feel a sense of pleasure when it happens like that's not how we do vr maybe some people like maybe you've got like really cool fancy vr that i don't know about that i should know about. yeah they got like what they're developing like vr porn Mm -hmm. they have vr porn i mean you can fuck like ai robots now like that's a thing Mm -hmm. so like he's he's not far off like the the bioport what is a bioport if not a spinal fleshlight like it's what it is (laughs) He, he even says at one point that like he's afraid of his body being penetrated. Yes. So this is to me like where a lot of the queerness comes from of existence. And obviously that can be a very like basic read. Obviously, penetrative sex is not exclusively queer, but somebody like Jude Law, who plays a lot of, you know, kind of leading male roles um granted now he's you know baby dumbledore so i guess he's he's playing gay so that's great but um watching a man be this like paranoid and upset and worried about being penetrated like it just has an implicitly queer read to it like it feels like queer panic yeah definitely i get what i get exactly where you're coming from on that which is why i thought it was interesting when i asked you to come on and i was like listen, we're doing Cronenberg through like a queer lens. Like, what do you got for us? And I legit was just watching this and I was like, okay, this one is almost like written on the wall. Here's the queer subtext of it all. Yeah, like there's a lot of stuff with penetration, but then there's also there is an inherent queerness to dominant women. That shouldn't be the reality that we live in, but unfortunately it is. So to have Jennifer Jason Lee be this character that is the dominant force, like if there's anything fantastical about this movie to me, it's like, wow, the entire world is really stoked about a female game designer. Fucking shocking. That's not real. Um, So Mm -hmm. people are like obsessed with her and love her, but she is in this power position where people are so threatened by her. And yet she's the one who is constantly penetrating him. And like, again, general blanket statement, you do not have to be a man who enjoys being penetrated by a woman to be queer. Like that is just a, fun behavior for all but there is a queerness to that there because it is a an interaction that is outside of the heterosexist norm and that to me is really cool and i love that it's jennifer jason lee who is one of my longtime celebrity crushes oh my gosh i was so stoked like as an annihilation fan to see her like pop up in this oh yeah she's she's just fantastic in this i love that she has like the same hairstyle as every made for TV movie that Mary Kate and Ashley starred in. I'm a huge fan of that. Um, but Jennifer Jason Lee in this is just such a delight. And I, I learned in a little bit of research I did for the show that apparently she's she was cut out of um, Eyes Wide Shut because she mm-hmm. couldn't come back for reshoots to because she was doing this movie. And I love that she prioritized a weird ass Cronenberg movie over a Kubrick movie like that's that's a, that's some punk rock shit. <laughs> It, it, it's pretty great because like we talked about that last episode. I keep referencing the crash episode we did because uh, Holly Hunter also prioritized working with Cronenberg over everything else. So I think at this point in his career, he was building up this reputation as like, oh, he's one of the directors you want to work with. Absolutely. And I mean, look at the material that he gives actors to work with. It's interesting and it's weird and they're likely not going to get to play a role like this ever again in their career unless it's with him Mm -hmm. and and you have those very like you have those very endearing like stories that people tell about Cronenberg and how his sets are very like welcoming and like everybody gets along 
Yeah, I've never heard a bad thing about Cronenberg from either the actors that have worked on his sets or on the sets that he's worked because he also pops up every once in a while as an actor. It's been pretty universally positive. Which is the total opposite of what you hear about, like the director, Stanley Kubrick of Eyes Wide Shut. Right. You know, Stanley, let me do hundreds of takes and torture Shelley Duvall Kubrick. Yeah, sure. What a hack. I mean, you totally like hear stories about that. And then you hear about like why Jennifer Jason Lee prioritized this over Eyes Wide Shut. And it all starts to kind of click in place. One hundred percent. Yes. Like, because why would you want to work on that environment? I understand the the accolades of working for somebody with such a prestigious reputation but ultimately like it's a job why would you want to work a job that's gonna suck exactly um i do like how you brought up the female game designer everybody losing their minds because there's like a little like real life parallels with that not a little like kind of a lot like eventually like what went on in the gaming industry uh, yeah, it's like Cronenberg Loki predicted Gamergate. <laughs> I a little bit in a way, like because you got to think like what like when like not too long after, like in 2007, you had like Assassin's Creed happen and Jade Raymond was like the face of that game and the face of Ubisoft at the time. And everybody absolutely adored her. Yeah. And like I feel like that was a world that I couldn't imagine have existing in 1999. Like no way in hell. It's uh, it's definitely it's definitely pretty wild how Cronenberg movies have a tendency to predict real life events <laughs> intentionally or not. Yeah, I think over at Slash Film, actually, I think somebody did an article that was like all the times that Cronenberg predicted the future. And if there's enough to make a list on like a film website, that's saying something. <laughs> Oh, a thousand percent. And I don't know if it's just Cronenberg. I I honestly think it's just him like observing the world at the time and seeing where things are going. I think he's got a very good like ear to the ground on what's happening in the world. Agreed. I also think that he is one of those directors that understands humanity and just like the the impulses of fellow man more than most like he has such a good read on how people would react if put in certain situations and that's why he just keeps getting proven over and over again like he's as much like an anthropologist as he is a filmmaker he's just spot on in how he assesses the world around us 100 percent agree like it especially blew my mind recently when he was talking about uh it didn't blow my mind because i saw it but it blew my mind to hear him come out and basically say like Crimes of the Future has like a lot of like trans allegories in it. Oh, yeah. Like he's he's just always been ahead of the curve, like always. And obviously transness is not a new thing, but in some people's minds it is because they're dumb. And the fact that he says it so matter of factly, he's like, yeah, of course, of course, this is an allegory for this. Why? What else would it be? And it, it's almost like he's insulted that anybody would assume that he wasn't smart enough to make that connection himself. Yeah, in a way, I totally get why he would be insulted, because he's like, I've been doing this for God knows how many years. And you guys don't think I know what I'm doing by this point. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, because like the way that I view the world of existence, right, is you see the world that they believe that they're in, because obviously we're doing some inception ass like virtual reality within virtual reality within virtual reality kind of shit. But the world that they believe to be real is kind of grimy and kind of run down and not really well maintained. And it's like, well, yeah, if something existed where we could just plug ourselves into a game and be into a better version of our own reality, why would anyone invest the time in the upkeep of our actual reality? So like the future wouldn't be shiny and chrome. It would be falling apart and Willem Dafoe is working at a gas station. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's like the opposite of like it's like a more like sincere thing of like what Ready Player One was trying to do. Totally. Yes. A hundred percent. Yes. Which I always find interesting because I always find Cronenberg dystopias to be far more accurate. <laughs> than other sci-fi dystopias yeah because i don't think he's playing in the world of fantasy as much as it's you know the not so near future and there's always going to be some fantastical elements to that he's basing everything in reality like it's a reach out and touch reality 
And that tends to be how we actually live. It's like people in the 50s were like, by 1985, we're going to have flying cars. And it's like, you're (laughs) crazy. No, we're not. But like Cronenberg knows that he's like, I'm not making these big swings because that's outside of the realm of possibility. I'm going to make something that feels so close that it makes you uncomfortable because you see that it's coming too. Exactly. And I feel like this is the movie that like it really like kind of clicked in my mind to me. Because I was like, oh, shit, like a lot of this ended up coming to be like, you can get your virtual reality headsets. You can get your VR porn. You got female designers being pulled on stage at like E3 being touted. Like, look at our like diversity, like celebrate us mm-hmm. um, while terrible shit just happens behind the scenes. And you had we are getting to the f- like the precipice of like deep fakes and AI and whatnot that lines between reality and like digital worlds are being blended in an uncomfortable way. Absolutely. I mean, uh, this is going to sound conceited, but it is what it is. So I'm, I'm verified on Twitter. And Mm -hmm. because of that, there is this very weird parasocial thing that exists where people make a lot of assumptions about who I am as a person, uh, especially how much money I have. Um, to the point where I am so uncomfortable being a quote unquote public figure in an online space at this point, because people communicate with me and want things from me as if I'm either like a mega celebrity, um, and they assume that I have millions of dollars to just give to people, which I absolutely do not. I promise you. Um, or they want to have communication with me as if like they are entitled to my time and my energy and my personality because I exist in public on the internet. And that is a world that I think existence is playing with just a little bit here when, when dealing with Allegra, um, that's Jennifer Jason Lee's character, um, because everybody wants something from her. And it's like, they act as if she owes them because like you made this thing that changed my life. Therefore you owe me X thing. In in some instances that means her life And that is so fucking scary to me. (laughs) No, yeah, it is. It's absolutely terrifying. And I think that's why it's terrifying is because it's so close to the world we currently live in, especially now. Like this movie has like aged so wonderfully, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with you completely is I think that this is it's aged better than a lot of the like, I guess the cyber futuristic world that we were playing, because we love that at the turn of the millennium. We were all about like, what's the Y2K going to look like in Jason X? It means that we're going to have tank tops worn backwards. Um, (laughs) But this feels like very, very realistic. And as much as like the game pod, which is fleshy and like kind of looks like both balls and a nipple um, (laughs) at the same time, that is, you know, seems like, oh, that seems like it's outside of the realm of possibility. But then, like, you know that fleshy things exist. Like, I mentioned, like, fleshlights earlier. Like, you can buy just broken parts of people's bodies to use them for your own pleasure. I I follow an Instagram account called Dildo Nightmares that I love. And -hmm. it will frequently show just, like, horrifying sex toys people have invented where it's, like, a full butt, but it also has a mouth, like, right above the butthole. (laughs) Like, just weird stuff so that people have like their own plaything, and like that's the plaything that we're getting with this like game pod like it's human and it's weird and all of the parts individually we recognize but when you put them all together then it turns into this like weird monstrous contraption but you can't help but want to touch it like that's that's this movie for me I, I definitely like see that and have seen that firsthand. Um, full disclosure, I have a friend who is in the adult industry. I will not name her um, ever publicly, but um, we went to Spencer's Gifts one time and there was a flashlight of her. And it was like this weird moment where like, I guess it kind of clicked in my head. I'm like, you can just go in and buy a replica of somebody's parts. And it's like weird. It's an it's invasive. Like it's weird in the fact that like it's based off of somebody. Yeah. So I did a short film a few years back that starred Joanna Angel. And so I know Joanna Angel and like I've, you know, seen her plenty, plenty of times since then. And mm-hmm. she was at a convention once and she was selling the flashlights that were, 
you know, shaped and modeled after her own body and she would autograph them for people. And like that to me was like the, the next step, because it's one thing to walk into a Spencer's gifts and buy it. It's another thing when you are buying it specifically from that person, like you are selling somebody this object that has been modeled after your body, you know what they're going to do with it and you know why they bought it. And like watching that interaction is just fascinating to me because obviously she has no qualms about it. She's like, I don't give a shit. Like Mm -hmm. it's fine. But like the look in their eyes when like they're so excited because this is going to feel like this person that's in front of me, like that is incredible. And I feel like that is the energy that existence taps into is that exchange. A hundred percent, a hundred, hundred percent. Like you worded it far better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a lot more time to think about this movie. <laughs> um, I do think that part of the reason this movie is so underrated is because it's so loaded and so like not weird, but uncomfortable because of how close it is to our reality. And I think that probably just scared off distributors and studios. I think that because there is such a lack of separation from fantasy and reality, it does make people uncomfortable. And I think that that's also why this movie doesn't get brought up as much when we're talking about like the canon of Cronenberg, because so many people are like, well, this isn't what I wanted. Because again, you hear virtual reality and you make a lot of assumptions of what that looks like. And this looks nothing like it. And I think that that disappointment was fostered because the the expectations were not met. But that's not the movie's fault. That's your own fault for putting these expectations upon a Cronenberg movie. Because like, how dare anybody expect anything from Cronenberg other than what he's going to fucking give you? Exactly. Exactly. I keep saying exactly and 100 percent. But you're really like bringing the heat right now with this analysis that in a way it's like <laughs> I I can't word it any better. <laughs> Because I feel like the outsider looking in of like, oh, this was my first viewing. And usually it takes like four or five viewings of Cronenberg for my gears to really get turning on it. But I think that that's also a very like valid assessment because you're right. Cronenberg is one of those directors where you can like I know plenty of people who watch his films the first time. and They're like, I didn't like that. But then they'll keep coming back to it and finding different things to assess or things to unpack or reinterpret or whatever. And it just becomes fascinating. Like Cronenberg's filmography is like when you scraped your knee as a little kid, like those gnarly scrapes that if you got them in as an adult, you'd probably go to the hospital. But as a kid, it's like, man, put some dirt on it and walk it off where it just starts healing and it's oozing and it's gross and it starts scabbing. And then you just want to pick the scab. But at the same time, you're fascinated by watching it heal. Like that is what his movies do. Like it's painful and gross and you should leave it the fuck alone, but you just want to keep picking at it. And the more you pick at it, the more kind of, I don't know, relief isn't the right word i guess just satisfying it becomes like i know it's bad to pick the scab but i want to because it's satisfying mm-hmm. no i 100 percent agree it's uh it's really one of those things where like i'm the type of person that when i see a cronenberg it does become that scab on my mind where i become like almost in a weird way like obsessed with it that i just have to keep running back to it and reassessing it and rewatching it and like A Cronenberg movie, a first time view, what I walk away from it is never what I walk away from on a fifth time view. Like it'll always be like two totally different views. Oh, absolutely. I feel like you need to watch his movies more than once because the first time you just kind of need to let it smack you in the face a little bit. And then you need to let that sting wear off a little bit and then come back for more so that you can actually assess what is happening because you already know the slap is coming and you've prepared for it. Mm-hmm. Here, here's another like weird way that like Cronenberg kind of predicted the future with existence. And hear me out. Um, the gristle gun. OK, yes, I'm, I'm with you. Tell me what your take is on the gristle gun. The gristle gun. They bring it up that it was a weapon that got past security that they couldn't detect because obviously it's not made of metal. It's made of like bone and flesh. But in our real life, we're seeing weapons that are starting to get like 3D printed terrifyingly. Uh huh. And that's what I'm just walking away with with Cronenberg going like eventually they won't need metal for weapons like this. Yes. So, okay, I'm really glad that you brought that up because I had a very similar thought during this latest rewatch, because obviously like guns have changed a lot since I've watched this movie over the years. It changes every day. 
Um, and the thing that is so terrifying to me about, I think at one point someone calls it an organic gun, which is super gross to me because I know if we could ever figure out the technology to make that happen, there would absolutely be like weird leftists that would be like, come on, man, like buy this organic gun. It's good for the environment and keeps you protected from your government. And it's like, or we should have gun control, but that's an entirely different tangent for a different day. Um, But I am always struck by how quiet that gun fires. Like it's upsetting because Mm -hmm. the bullets are teeth because of course it is. um, And it's quiet. And that to me is just very upsetting because movies have, you know, conditioned your brain to think of gunshots sounding a certain way. So when it doesn't, Um, then it hits a little too close to home for me because I was like, I know what a bullet sounds like coming out of a silencer and it's really close to that. Yeah, that's that's actually a very terrifying thought. I do. I do hate how like also like whenever it impacts somebody in this movie, it just like sears the flesh and like just tears it apart like more than a normal gunshot would would in like a movie. Yeah, the way I think about it is. um like like hollow point bullets are just the bullets that obliterate things because they're hollow and they spread out. And mm-hmm. that's the closest thing that I think that a tooth would do because you have like the roots of the tooth that would go through and that would kind of serve as like a hollow point in a way. Mm-hmm. And that's just, oh, it's just, that's a brutal way to go. Like that's awful. There's, you're not coming back from it, number one. And if you are coming back from it, you're fucked up. <laughs> yeah, no, it's literally created to destroy which is what I think is most unsettling about this gun in this film. Yes, it's it's just very upsetting. And then also in a weird way, I love that teeth are the bullets because to me, like that really is the most organic way to have a bullet because like we we hear all the time when somebody is just killed in a very gruesome manner, like the only way we could, you know, figure out who they are was through their dental records. And that adds like a very morbid level to using that as a weapon. Like the one thing that is usually like the surefire way of knowing who somebody was before they died, like that is now being weaponized and used to kill people. And that's gross and fucked up. And I'm also obsessed with it. It's it's definitely like one of the most like, it's like you see this movie you're forever associating it with that gnarly looking thing that Jude Law carries around yes and like just the fact that when they're in the game and the like it works with such video game mechanics right of like he gets presented with this horrible looking like gross meal of what looks like just dead fish and he has the compulsion of like oh I have to eat this because I have to make the gun because that's the next step of the game like you really don't have control over that you have to do that and to know that people could just give you a gun in the middle of a Chinese <laughs> restaurant is so scary. It's like, oh, I have to do the side quest. Right. The side quest of me eating this gnarly food so that I can make a weapon and kill the waiter who has been nothing but nice to me. Who's actually my contact. <laughs> Right. So there's just so much at play going on here. And I don't know if this is true or not, but I have heard that Cronenberg is a gamer, which would not surprise me in the slightest. Um, And this movie feels as much like a warning for the future of video game and VR as it is like a love letter to it of like, isn't it cool that we can do this shit? Like, isn't that fun? But of course, it's just weird because it's Cronenberg and he's a weird guy. I I would love to see him and John Carpenter like sit down and discuss video games. Yes. Okay. Like, I don't know what it is about like Cronenberg and Carpenter for sure. Or the two where it's like they are so known for horror guys, but in their real life, they're just bros who want to like watch basketball, play video games and listen to rock music. And that's really cool to me. I think like I think it was Carpenter, but like he literally said like, Somebody asked him what he thought of the new Halloweens and he's like, oh, I don't give a shit as long as I get my paycheck so I could buy my video games and weed. Yeah, that was definitely a Carpenter quote. And I love that. And I feel like so many filmmakers get so consumed with like having to make their brand or like, oh, they have to be the horror guy or whatever. Meanwhile, Cronenberg and Carpenter are like, no, nah, I let my art speak for myself. I'm going to just play Halo. <laughs> like, <laughs> No, 100 percent. I think that's interesting, too, because. This was a uh, Cronenberg's last body horror uh, for a long time until this year. No. Yeah, this was this was one of the last ones for a very, very long time. <laughs> and we're what is it now? Like 
20, I'm not, I'm not a mathematician. 2022. Yeah. It's like two decades. That's two decades. Wild. I think, I think this one may have scared everyone off of his brand of uh, body horror. I think you're right. I think that people were like, okay, this is weird. And then also, I just think that I genuinely do think that as much as like the Matrix did so much good, I think it kind of hurt him a bit because people rejected this movie so severely. And I think it's because it wasn't like the Matrix and it turned people off from Cronenberg just in general because he's the guy that did that. I mean, director's jail is real. We know that for sure. And part of me thinks that that was part of it. I think people were nervous after that because he's done some other weird movies that people love and are critically acclaimed, but don't necessarily make money. And this did not make money. And 1999 is really when we're starting to tiptoe towards the world that we're in now where, you know, we talked about earlier with like things being kind of made through algorithm where money is the main priority. Like it doesn't matter how many people shit on Morbius. They're making a second one. And it's mm-hmm. because money talks. It didn't matter how much Colin Trevorrow's first Jurassic World sucked. He got to make more because they made an ass load of money. And Cronenberg could make the coolest movie in the world. But if it didn't come with a, a big box office, then they weren't going to give him more money. Yeah, because um, I'm looking at his filmography right now. I brought it up out of curiosity. Um, he did Spider in 2002 and then didn't and then started uh in 2005 with a history of violence like his like quote unquote mainstream era yeah i think what history of violence is the last film to ever be released in vhs is that it's like claim to fame yes it is that and uh everybody likes to talk about the staircase scene well yeah it's a good one <laughs> <laughs> it really is i i even like cronenberg's like mainstream era i love because i, I still think it's loaded and still has a lot to say yeah, it's always really fun when you think about like the stuff Cronenberg has done and then you get to be like, and also M. Butterfly. <laughs> yeah, that's so that was like same same era of existence. Like 90s Cronenberg is really some of the most interesting stuff he's ever done. So like for our listeners who are listening, the 90s era of Cronenberg consisted of Naked Lunch, uh, M. Butterfly, Crash, Existence, and that was it. <laughs> And then he's also acting as Dr. Decker in Nightbreed. Yes. In 1990. Like, so (laughs) he has such a weird decade going on here, but all of it's wonderful and unique and really not similar to each other at all. In a weird way, that 90s era of his is like vastly underrated. I think so, too. It's also in maybe this is a hot take. Maybe not. This is also his queerest decade. Like this Mm -hmm. to me is when his movies are the most like on front street queer, either subtextually or just straight up textually. And the fact that this is also his underrated era, um, I feel like that's not a coincidence in the slightest. No, absolutely not. Whether it's this uh, Jude Law talking about being afraid of penetration or the full blown gay sex scene in Crash, it was really like. Like, it's not like subtle either. It's like there in front of your face for you to see. And people like either don't want to acknowledge it or just don't watch movies from this era. Yeah, totally. And I mean, in Existence, like there's so much like orifice play just either through the game, like literal play with the game. But also they're, they're constantly lubricating it. They're touching it. And mm-hmm. what I also find so interesting is that when Jude Law talks about getting that bioport put in and he's like, how does it not get infected? It's just, you know, like an opening that's been put on me. Your brain immediately is like vagina. Like that's where it goes. It's like, that's, it's a vagina thing. And instead of making that joke, Jennifer Jason Lee opens her mouth and sticks out her tongue. And I'm like, Oh, Cronenberg, you cheeky bastard. You're so <laughs> smart. Like you knew that we're all a bunch of weird perverts that went to vagina and you were like, uh-uh, I'm talking about your mouth. Cronenberg is that weird pervert that's like one step ahead of everyone. Oh, yeah. He's like he's like King pervert with like with like John Waters. where like he knows where our brain is going to go. So then he's already figured out how to circumvent what we were thinking about so that it makes us feel like the weirdos. Oh, 100 percent. Like, you know, damn well, when they shot that bathhouse scene in Eastern Promises, like he knew all of us were just going to be talking about Vigo's dick in that scene. 
Totally. He knows. He knows what he's doing. And that's what makes all of his work so brilliant, because you know that it's intentional. None of this is by accident. This isn't like a weird read that we're applying to it. Like he knew what he was doing and he was waiting for us to find it. A hundred percent. I think I think we may have found the reasons why this movie kind of just like slipped under everyone's radar. It's it's pretty queer, though, not on the surface. Well, maybe on the surface, however you want to read it. And, you know, it just came out in that era where, like, The Matrix did a lot of good for sci-fi, but also ruined it in a way. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think, th- I think that's what we're dealing with here. Yeah, because, like, I remember sci-fi going forward after The Matrix. Everything had to be shiny and chrome. Everybody had to be wearing black leather. Mm-hmm. Like, be very high sci-fi. I don't know. It, sh- it, it was refreshing to watch this movie and go, like, oh, it's sci-fi, but not in the way you would expect. Yes. And I I love that. I mean, my favorite episodes of Black Mirror are the ones that don't feel like ultra sci-fi, shiny and chrome. They're the ones that feel like a little too close to reality to where I could I can reach out and touch it. And, you know, sadly, they don't have fleshy game pods in that show, but I'll always have existence. (laughs) And at the end of the day, isn't that what sci-fi is supposed to be like science fiction, like it it like sci-fi to me is at its best when it's in within the realm of possibility. I'm right there with you. Like part of the reason that I love a show like Futurama so much is because most of the time the science checks out and that's really cool to me. And, and it just tells a very wonderful emotional story. That too. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Pizza I, forever. Are you excited for that coming back? I'm so excited for that coming back. I was kind of insufferable when the announcement was made. And at first I was really upset because, you know, there was the the concern that, you know, DiMaggio wasn't going to be coming back for Bender. And then uh, when they settled that and made it happen, I was like, yay, my babies, they're returning. This is what time number three. It's coming back, I think. Yeah, or- this is the third time, not including the movies that they did. But the movies were also partially why they came back. That's that's insane. Well, you yeah. can't keep a good dog down, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. So I have two little fun facts about existence. Uh, I had a third, but we talked about that with Jennifer Jason Lee and Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, beautiful. Um, but the X and the Z are capitalized because the letters between them make up the word Isten, which is the Hungarian word for God. The film has two Hungarian producers. Oh, that's clever. I like that a lot. Yeah, which kind of like opened up a little more because like Jennifer Jason Lee's character is like almost like the god of this world. Oh, yeah. There's like a lot of like God and Madonna things happening with her character. Like she refers to the game as her baby all the time. Um, it, uh, Willem Dafoe has that big speech about art is God and all of that. So, th- yeah, that tracks. <laughs> it's interesting, too, because like the ending where they get out spoilers for nobody that's seen this. but. Do you think that they're still in the game at the end of the movie? So that is the million dollar question. And I've decided that if they are still in the game, I love it. If they are not in the game, I also love it because I love long cons. And if they are realists, that's really interesting to me. And it's also even more interesting to me if uh, realists or, you know, the people that are anti blurring the lines between reality and uh, fantasy through virtual worlds. If they are that good at the game that they could win the game, essentially, that's really cool to me. So I'm okay with either read of it. Um, I like to believe that they are still in the game. That's super interesting. I actually love that reading because I walked away with the reading of like, oh, they're out of the game. Jennifer Jason Lee went in the game, started playing God and still played God when she got out by exposing herself as a realist i think yeah either way you slice it it's still Mm -hmm. good and it's still interesting oh a thousand percent it's one of the most fascinating endings out of any of his films i think i think this and crimes of the future have the two most fascinating endings i mean if we're going to connect him back to carpenter it's the same ending as the thing and i think that's really cool (laughs) very ambiguous like let's Mm -hmm. see christopher nolan do that with inception yeah, he can't. He wishes. A hundred percent. And the other fact I have is the motel in this film is the famous Rosebud Motel from the hit show Shit's Creek. 
that obviously was like a new thing for me because Shit's Creek has come out much later. So upon the rewatch and, you know, they they pull up to that hotel, my wife and I both were like, oh, shit, it's Rosebud Motel, which makes sense because he's also Canadian and that's a Canadian show. So, duh. It, it was it was pretty great because I actually read that before I watched this. So I just like could not get it out of my head. I was like, what last episode of Shit's Creek is this? <laughs> <laughs> could you imagine like David and Alexis having to play Existence? What a great game that would be. Oh, my gosh. They should have done an episode with that where like David has like a the 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 fleshy gun and he's just like, ew. <laughs> <laughs> Like and Alexis doesn't want to get Alexis doesn't want the the umby cord put in her back. Just ooh, David. No, they're just grabbing napkins when they have to touch anything. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's a world that I need. I need a I need a Cronenberg Schitt's Creek crossover. Canadians make it happen. I'm actually surprised he was never in an episode of that, considering how many like productions he just randomly shows up in. You know, that's a really good point. That's true. <laughs> like he like he showed up in Star Trek, of all things. He just goes where he's needed at this point. I, I loved him in Jason X since that movie got mentioned earlier. Yeah, he's Cronenberg's fantastic. Part of me likes to believe that just a bunch of fanboys who get to make movies are just like, what if I just call David Cronenberg? And he's like, hell yeah, I'm here to support the young arts. Like, I can't imagine him saying no to something. I I, I feel like he would. I feel like he would just like randomly show up like if you were like filming in Canada and it was like, why not? Yeah, exactly. Like if you're filming somewhere that he can get to and go home at the end of the night, I don't see why he would say no. Mm-hmm. And full disclosure, want- that is not a call for people to just start harassing David Cronenberg to be in their movies. Mr. Cronenberg being my Spider-Man fan film. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um. I do want to say before like we get out of here, some of my closing comments on existence is I think we're seeing a repeat of like the reception of this movie with crimes of the future. Oh, okay. Like, like let's not sugarcoat it. That movie is not a hit with audiences. No, they're not liking it at all, which makes me just more excited because I, that means that means in like 10 years from now, we're going to be talking about culturally what a brilliant misunderstood masterpiece it is. And we can be like, we were there on the ground floor. So in 10 years, if this pot is still running, I can ask you back to do that. episode. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> See, we're in the long con. I love a long con. But uh, I, I do like I saw it in the theater and like there was like 10 people in my theater and they like all walked out by the end. Really? I kind of live for those moments, if I'm going to be honest. It was great. I saw it like in sort of a conservative part of Arizona, which might explain it. Probably. Yeah. But I was like, oh, there's actually a good amount of people here because we went at like 1045 on a Saturday. Oh, yeah. That's like the crowd that's just trying to use up their AMC membership points. Yeah. And like one, somebody said it's kind of funny that we're seeing crimes of the future at brunch time but uh (laughs) but two like yeah by the end it was just me and my two friends and we're like oh wow literally everybody got up and walked out at one point that makes me think of the last movie that i saw in theaters before pandemic quarantine happened um was the hunt and my wife and i were still living in cleveland at the time so we were in an ohio theater People were not jazzed on that movie and they were not happy. (laughs) No, I they probably saw the political stuff and went, what? Yep. They were like, we're not staying around to get to the end of this. We are leaving because we feel offended. Well, for our listeners, also, we are recording this on the day that Crimes of the Future has officially hit digital video on demand. Ooh, now everyone can be creeps at home. Yeah. Listen, uh, we got an episode coming up and. Go ahead, buy it, get creepy by existence as well. I would 100% recommend this movie. I am like gonna like say that this is probably in my top half of like my Cronenberg ranking. I, oh, really I love, love that. <laughs> I like did not expect it to be what it was. And it's one that I already kind of want to rewatch. I'm like, what if I rewatched it after this recording? You know what? I'm not going to stop you. I'm actually going to encourage that. Definitely. Um, do you have any closing comments on existence? 
I guess the only closing comments that I have is I just wish that the random wave hair pieces would come back because uh, it's a look. Oh, yeah. I actually loved her wavy like bits in her hair. Oh, yeah. I think I referred to it earlier as Mary Kate and Ashley movie hair, but like that's what it is. And <laughs> I I want it to come back. I want everyone to look like that. They just came off the set of Lizzie McGuire. That's what I want. Love it. I think I tweeted out like when I saw it, I was like, Jennifer Jason Lee in this movie is the goal. <laughs> she looks so great in this movie. She's just wonderful. She's wonderful in everything. She can do no wrong in my eyes. Yeah. Every time I like she's one of those actresses that every time she pops up in a movie, I was like, oh, OK, this is great. <laughs> yeah, I watched um, that show atypical because specifically because she was on it. That's what got me to watch it. And then I was like, oh, wait, there's actually some good here. Um, but she is a shining star for sure. Hell yes. Um, well, I think that puts a wrap on this episode. Uh, BJ, you got anything you want to plug, promote? Where can people find you on social media, etc.? Sure. So you can find me on Twitter and Instagram being a loudmouth film person. Um, my handle is at BJ Colangelo. And if you want to see me shitpost and talk about queer stuff, I'm also on TikTok at BJ Colangelo. And if you want to check out uh, my wife and I's podcast, it's This Ends at Prom, wherever you get your podcasts at This Ends at Prom on social media. And again, it's a fun podcast assessing coming of age stories. My wife is transgender, so she missed a lot of movies that were really formative for me. So it's us watching them together and figuring out if they're actually good or if I only like them because I watched them when I was 12. Love to hear it. <laughs> and as always, you can find me at JFC Doomblade. You can also find my work being published at Bylines all over the web. Pangoria, Bloody Disgusting, formerly Netflix. I, I get around. I get around somehow. You can also find the pod at Windsor Film Club on Twitter and Instagram. You can find us on Apple and Spotify podcasts. Please leave us a five star review. That really helps us out. And once again, thank you to our sponsor, Super Yaki, for sponsoring this episode.